Hello and welcome back to the weekly Bunker Roundtable with me, Andrew Harrison. Coming up on today's edition, get your Massey Fergus on as British politics ploughs new furrows of embarrassment and foolishness. Will tractors and beer and all the rest of it make any difference to the local elections and Boris Johnson's fate in Ukraine as Russia raises the stakes? What is really going on with these mysterious fires and explosions in the Moldovan breakaway region of Transnistria and inside Russia itself? And it's not all bad news. There's a search on for a new emoji. What would our panel like to see? All that and more in this week's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Remember, if you enjoy this podcast, you can help us to keep on keeping on by backing us on the crowdfunding site Patreon. You'll get the shows early and free of interruption from adverts, plus all sorts of extra merchandise and other benefits. You can support us for as little as £2 a month, less than the price of even the cheapest and nastiest coffee. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes. Let's meet today's panel. First up, hello to writer and editor Justin Quirk. Hello. Hello, Andrew. So it's been a big, big weekend for fans of heavy machinery. As uh, porn-watching MP Neil Parrish now finds himself an ex-tractor fan. We're not sure why there's a tractor called the Dominator, but there is for some reason. Where does all this rank in the annals of ignominy? It's pretty bad, isn't it? Um, Firstly, I'd say in Parrish's defence that it was quite refreshing to actually just see someone quit. Yes. Like, admittedly, not straight away, and after he'd gone on GB News going, my God, who is this terrible sort of onanistic uh, member? We will get him. Um, so that was a sort of refreshing change. I'm, I'm still unclear as to what tractor-related content you could be looking for, which might lead you to top-shelf material, but that's possibly a thread you don't want to start pulling at. Um, I mean, yes, it's completely risible in terms of where scandals go, but in an odd way, scandals which stick in the public mind tend to be the ones which are more ridiculous rather than the ones which are sort of flat-out criminal. Yes, that's so, so true. Over the weekend, <laughs> I had to Google to remind myself what Jonathan Aitken and Neil Hamilton had done, but Ron Davies hunting for badgers is yeah. still seared into my memory. So um, in that sense, it's probably lower on the list of generalised offences, but it probably will stick in the public mind for longer. I'm sure also over the weekend uh, you enjoyed the return of, uh, surprise return of uh, Tony Blair in Labour's 1997 oh. election video. I watched it over and over again. The King Over the Water. Yes. Yeah, that, that's your equivalent of tractor-related material. It basically it? is. <laughs> <laughs> like tractors for centrists. Um, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, we've, it, it was great to see him back, but more because it sort of just suggests once again that actual grown-ups are in charge of the Labour Party and people who don't just have a sort of reflexive embarrassment at the time we did some stuff quite well or we actually won something. So, uh, yeah, I thought on that note it was uh, it was encouraging. I'm, I'm a bit disappointed he's lost the long hair, though. I thought it was great when he came out of lockdown with the uh, yeah, middle-aged the, the Italian great hair. Stoke, William Hartnell look. I looked yeah. incredible. He looked like <laughs> Bill from Kill Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Also with us is former diplomat and host of the Doomsday Watch podcast, Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. Hello, Andrew. So we're going to be talking about Ukraine in some detail later, uh, but Britain's supposed open arms to refugees are not looking very open this week. The FT had a story about a woman having to return to her bombed-out house to retrieve passports to get her kid processed. Priti Patel is now facing a class action suit over delays in approving the visas, including approving them, but not telling the recipients. So yeah, they that, don't know. That's a particularly cunning one, isn't yes. it? Um, a way of keeping the numbers down, I suspect. Yeah, so, I mean, how is our world-leading refugee programme leading the world, do you think? I think it's delivering its intended uh, purpose very well, which is that it looks on paper like a generous programme. It has no limit on the numbers, as we keep being reminded. But in practice, it's very difficult for all kinds of reasons. It's even harder if uh, you have to dig through rubble to get your passport or or Mm. you don't even learn that you've uh, received the visa. So I think it's delivering on, on the required outcome. There was a particularly shocking international story this morning as we woke up to the first Supreme Court leak in modern history, which indicates that Roe v. Wade is basically done. Egregiously wrong, says Justice Alito. Decisions on abortion will go back to states and effectively become illegal overnight in about 20 of them. How seismic is this? Well, uh, let's hold out for the the, the last uh, slither of hope that this was a leaked draft judgment. Mm. Very, very unusual um, for a draft judgment to get leaked. So that in itself tells us that there's probably some people who work in the Supreme Court who aren't very happy about this. But if the judgment uh, isn't isn't much edited, which I suppose it probably won't be, then yes, this is the US culture wars take going to the next level where the whole debate about whether or not abortion will be legal uh, has now been uh, t- overturned by the Supreme Court, which is, of course, what you get 
when you fix the uh, nominations to the Supreme Court, which you'll recall that a combination of Mitch McConnell and President Trump managed to do over the last few years. Our special guest today is senior political correspondent at the Daily Mirror and, as she's announced this very morning, soon to be joining the New Statesman as deputy political editor. It's Rachel Weirmouth. Hello, how are you doing? Hello, very well, thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Rachel Weirmouth, although I believe we have to call you like Rachel Tynemouth or Rachel Tyneside or any, <laughs> anything but the geographically accurate. <laughs> I get a lot of stick from Sunderland fans who feel that my surname, yeah. Is just hand it over to the Prime Minister. He'll just put a pin in a map somewhere. Um, <laughs> so congratulations on the job. Thank you. Um, I mean, before anything else, what did you make of uh, Boris Johnson turning up late for, on Good Morning Britain, not knowing who Lorraine Kelly is and saying that he invented a bus pass that had already pre-existed in by a decade or so. I think, well, you know, when you hear you hear the, the phrase car crash interview um, used very many times and often incorrectly, but this was a car crash interview. I, you know, I mean, I can't imagine Gito Harry, the, the Prime Minister's press, press secretary, is going to be very much of a popular man in number yeah. 10 who... <laughs> How the hell did you allow me to do that, Gitto? Yeah, yeah, how did he, you know, he said somebody surely should have stopped him. And I think um, it, it just all reflects very, very well on Susanna Reid, you know, who, who gave a fantastic interview, um, really drove home and all the emotional points. Yeah. And it was it was very tough for the Prime Minister. But also it's like a very, isn't it? A, it's one thing being an idiot in the Commons when nobody's watching but people like us. It's another thing being an idiot on GMB where your voters are watching. Yeah, I mean, it's a good thing when he was, tw- he was 20 minutes late because I think if he had to do the full yeah. <laughs> interview, yeah. he might have been in a lot more trouble. Excellent dodge, yeah. Boris. Uh, you were on holiday in Norway last week, so oh, did, you, did you enjoy avoiding this glorious week for British democracy, tractors, beer and all the rest of it? Well, you know, I, I, I didn't delete the Twitter app, so I kind of <laughs> kept logging in and just finding these, you know, endless memes about tractors and corn hub and all yeah. of these things. And I just thought, I have to Google what the story is. I'll have to, unfortunately, find out. For a few days, it was like, who is it? Who is it? Who's the who's watching filth on the front benches kind mm-hmm. of thing? Did you get a sense of what that kind of feeding frenzy... Obviously, you're a you know you're a lobby person. What is the feeding frenzy like when something like that kicks off? Well, this, you names get bandied around, you know, and as I, as I understand it, it was almost the case that somebody else made it into the story that it wasn't this mm. person. Um, so, yeah, it, I mean, it just kind of, when some, when it's that hotter story, I think it's very, very difficult for it not to be flushed out, particularly when it was, you know, witnessed by a, a female minister yeah. and another female MP. I just got pictures of it running around the corridors going, it's a tractor, it's a tractor. <laughs> um, and and the, the boldness of going on to GB News and saying, oh, yeah, I think this, <laughs> I think this person should be hunted out and the disciplinary process should be allowed to take its course, you know, the, the brass neck. <laughs> that was when you've properly got to go yeah. shit or bust. Right? <laughs> what, what, what was this thinking process when you thought, yeah, I'll do that interview? Yeah, but also it's like you know when the person who's definitely done the murder goes on the BB or goes on the press conference with the police and says we have to find who's done this murder, and it's like it's you, isn't it? You've done it. It's clearly you. You look like a murderer. It was. Well, it was one of those situations. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, there's all sorts of very, very unworthy hilarity to be had out of this, which we've been having here. You know, sort of reducing it to like ha ha porn tractors. Is that sort of uh, trivialising the actual culture of? sexist bullying that takes place in the commons. I remember on Sunday just reading this, the Sunday Times right through of um, you know, how just how they thought the the in, independent uh, grievance system was was going, and it was just allegation after allegation, mm. and and yeah, it's you feel like it just hasn't stopped or slowed down since um, since Me Too and Pestminster, which was some years ago now, yeah. um, and that it just doesn't seem to be getting any better. Um, so yeah, it does, you do kind of just wonder what what has to happen for it to end and for this to get better. So let's continue with British politics. Uh, the local elections that could decide Boris Johnson's fate take place this week. There are council elections in England, Scotland and Wales. Northern Ireland votes for members instalment. Listeners in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, we're not going to attempt to cover this because it's a room full of English people. So, you know, we'll, these things will be dealt with later. Please tweet at another time. So... <laughs> How the Conservatives do on Thursday very much could affect the leadership challenge, we are told. And judging by the intensity of the male in particular's attempts to turn Keir Starmer's pint into a thing, central office is quite rattled. We keep hoping for a high name for Boris Johnson. Will it ever happen? So, Rachel, there are local elections for local people. Uh, but in the last national poll, I think it was a Redfield and Wilton one, Labour was on 41%, the Conservatives on 33%, both down just one point. Are we likely to get this kind of stasis-breaking moment that the likes of us in this room would like to see? 
Uh, no, mm. um, and I, I'm always I'm quite sceptical that local elections ever prove anything decisively mm. um, and particularly in this case because it's not not every council is is up in its entirety so it's it's unlikely that there'll be lots of councils that change hands mm. um, but the expectation management from all parties at this point is is insane so the conservatives is kind of behind closed doors saying they're going to lose loads and loads and loads of seats and and labor's uh, no rather we're going to, labor's going to win loads of seats and mm. it's got you know just the expectation management so it's kind of somewhere in the middle of what where both parties are briefing and the briefings are all just ridiculously dramatic that it's going to be such a terrible night for both of them if you had your whatsapp on right now would it be ping ping we're going to be absolutely screwed ping ping it's awful it's terrible yeah yeah and i think the narrative that comes out of the the end of it's going to be the interesting thing because Labour stands to um, make quite a few gains in mm-hmm. in the the capital in London, which um, I think some people within the party are probably quite fearful that it'll make them, it'll allow this, where party of the metropolitan elite to to continue. But yeah. I, the, but there's quite a few red wall council areas up as well, Sunderland being one of them. And when you look at the last cycle, it's kind of when. Jeremy Corbyn actually did his best. It was in 20, 2017 and mm. Theresa May was incredibly unpopular at the time. So you'll see some things change hands, but, you know, relatively few. So as someone who's in on the granularity of this, what are the particular ones that you think this is a thing to look out for? This, uh, this is an interesting thing that might develop a particular place. I think um, if you want to look at Barnet. In, yeah. in in London, you know, it's it's the most Jewish area in the country. Labour has a very good chance of taking that seat, um, mm. taking that council. If that does happen, you'd see Keir Starmer be there, making a yeah. making a big deal of it. Similarly with uh, Wandsworth, which has been a Tory stronghold for decades now, um, yeah. and has the lowest council tax in the country. I think if, if Labour's able to take that, I think they'll make a big deal out of that as well. Um, you've got some councils up in the Midlands, which will be interesting also. They're um, quite a bit wobbly about Bury, which is kind of, you know, one of those red wall areas mm. which change hands quite a lot. So, they'll, you know, they'll want to look quite closely at what happens in those area, in that area in particular. I mentioned the targeting of Starmer and the attempts to create something out of, you know, having a beer at the end of a day of campaigning, which was investigated at the time, Durham police found nothing in it. There has been a full court press to get this back on the agenda. The mail has run with it for like four consecutive days. Little John's banging up. Where, I mean, apart from the obvious answer that they're desperate to throw mud, is this, is this, is the mud sticking at all? Is it cutting through? Well, that's a really good question. I think when you sort of, when you look at it logically and you look at how there's a very big difference between party gate and the industrial mm. levels of, level of partying that happened in number 10 by those who set the rules. And this one instance, which they have some questions to answer there, but it's, you know, I, don't, I think there's no prospect of Durham police ever yeah. reopening that. And I think it's a, it's a political game, as you say, to, to draw a false equivalence here and to make out that, you know, Keir Starmer is as, as bad for being yeah. pictured with a beer as everything that's happened at number 10. So it is a very political situation. But is it cutting through? It depends how much the public really taking notice. And I think there is this feeling often where they're all just as bad as each other and, Mm. you know, faith faith in politics is generally quite low. So they could riff off the back of that general mood. And I don't know if if that'll have much cut through. But when you see some of the polling, people just do have drawn the conclusion that Boris Johnson has partied and partied and partied mm-hmm. and that it's much less likely that Keir Starmer is, is the one who broke the rules. Is that what the sense you're getting from mirror readers then? Because obviously no, you're that's in a, touch with your readers. That's, yeah. that's a poll that, that was out this morning. I can't yeah. remember the exact percentage off the off the top of my head, but you know, people are less likely to believe Keir Starmer broke the rules than mm. Boris Johnson, I mean, who's already been fined by the yeah. Met Police. Yeah. We are, as I mentioned earlier, you know, sort of constantly you know, told it's this is the crunch moment, this is this is high noon. If the local elections go badly for Johnson, then, you know, in the nineteen twenty two post bag's gonna be bulging. As somebody who's a lot closer to it than me, what's your sense? Is it you know, firstly, how many letters are in? Well we're never ever told that. It's always mm. a closely guarded secret. And then you have some people who you have some Conservative MPs rather who put put their letter in and then have a wobble and take it yeah. take it back out. And uh, so it did, did depend. And most of most of those who were very, very sceptical and went on record and then um some such as Andrew Andrew Bridgen, you know, Brexiteer, big ally of Boris Johnson's, he put his letter in and then became convinced that 
everything was yeah. okay and that the Prime Minister had done a good job of, of handling the Ukraine crisis and he, he backed away from that position. So nobody really knows at the minute what, what the Conservative backbenchers, what the general feeling is about the Prime Minister. But I suspect if the results are really bad and they lose a lot of, you know, some of them will be their Tory grassroots campaigners who'll go out and knock on doors for them at, you know, at elections. And if there, if a lot of associations are very unhappy, yeah, it, um, it could be could become very difficult for you him. Do you get the sense that they, that these people are always looking for the next last straw? You know, it's like whatever happens, it's like, well, this isn't the time or this isn't the moment or this isn't the issue. And you're like, what does he actually have to do? Well, I think it's when you look at what the myriad problems that the government has and that any government would have after after the COVID pandemic and the economy being in the state it is, it's very difficult to change leader and then move to the next general election because what Boris Johnson does have is name recognition. Mm. So if you kind of try to excuse or explain or your record, yeah. it's kind of, it'll be very difficult to do and sell that to the electorate with somebody that they've never heard of, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Whereas I think there probably some Conservative MPs have come to the conclusion that there are still some people who who, who like Boris Johnson just because they know who, know who yeah. he is and he has that Heineken politician residual Heineken, Heineken politician feel to him. But, yeah. you know, that might feel very different by the time we get to the next election. Though. Quite a lot of the uh, the unknown source MPs in the weekend papers was basically saying anything would be better than this. Someone you've never heard of would be better than this. Justin Johnson's approval rating has been steadily declining. It was about 16% positive a year ago, kind of when we were still at the tail end of the pandemic. It's now 8 to 10% negative. <laughs> Yet Starmer's own approval is quite quite lukewarm. It looks an awful lot like the kind of red meat populist Rwanda agenda that we've had over the past couple of months really hasn't cut through at all. They're not very good at being populist, are they, these populists? No, we've touched on this previously that on a swathe of issues from taking the knee to selling off Channel 4, they keep loudly trumpeting these policies to appeal to the base, this fictional base, only to find that the base aren't actually that keen on them. Mm. And, you know, they sort of seem to keep targeting these things that most British people actually quite like. But... I do think it points to an interesting line of attack that Labour could be making a lot more of, which is, you know, the Tories are supposedly the party of patriotism, the flag, you know, standing up for the country. And yet you could quite accurately call out and go, well, look, you've attacked pretty much every single institution of the country from underfunding the police to encouraging people to boo the most successful football team we've had in donkey's years. And I think on on a really simple way for Starmer to almost stand up in Parliament and say, Johnson, what is it about this country that you actually love? Mm. Strikes me as the kind of line which could cut through quite nicely because what's the answer to it? Yeah. And I don't know what it is. And because they they don't have a ideological programme really anymore, you know, most of what has passed for conservatism for most of our lifetimes has pretty much been junked in the last, you know, two to three years. So there's not really an ideological base. The emotional base that they're trying to push out doesn't really seem to be landing with people. So essentially, it's about him. Mm. You know, it's what do you have to do to keep Boris Johnson in power? And I think given that that's always been, you know, historically Labour's kind of soft underbelly is you're the party of anywhere but here. Mm. You know, you don't really love the country. You know, you're more bothered about Palestine and Nicaragua than you are about, you know, the bus network up north. Mm. It feels like there might be a point in where they could flip that on its head quite neatly. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not just the, the emotional and the, uh, and the kind of programme stuff, but it's just you know, the basic basket of issues. Redfield and Wilton, again, polling at the weekend. Labour's ahead of the Conservatives, not just on the, not just on the NHS and poverty and, and education, which you'd expect Labour to be ahead on. They're also ahead on the economy and crime. Labour's even ahead on immigration. Mm. And it's like... On the worst day of their lives, a Conservative cabinet can usually go tough on crime, tough on immigration, mm. and they're failing on that as well. Mm. And you kind of think, I mean, you know, Rachel, what, I mean, how have they managed to get into this bad place on what's supposed to be their power issues? I think it always comes back to the it's the economy, stupid, isn't it? And mm. I think I think people start to naturally become more critical and more questioning of a government when they start to feel poorer. And when you look at the uh, what happened in the, the last mini budget, you know, mm. we're looking at the biggest fall in living standards since the time of rationing. You know, and I think that 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 just makes people consider their government, reconsider their government, and what and what they want. And I think you've got to look at how. Brexit's starting to affect the economy. Um, I think when you look at their, their, you know, they're supposed to be the party of law and order, the mm-hmm. Conservatives, and 
the Prime Minister broke the law. Mm. <laughs> you know, and you've seen police forces hollowed out. I just think they've just got a myriad of issues. And I think it's just there's an element of fatigue with the yeah. voters as well, who they're kind of... But I think I would agree with um, with um, the, the rest of the analysis here, which is Labour's not quite quitting through either. Yeah, I mean, I keep seeing sort of out the colour of my eye this idea of the, the notion of an emergency budget, that there might be an emergency. It's like, which seems... It's not that long since you've had the spring statement, which was supposed to set out your, your future. I mean, what are you hearing about the likelihood of that? Um, I, I know that it's, it's wanted by um, a lot of Labour politicians, but not, not necessarily mm. the Conservatives. I think it's it's seen as inevitable that what Rishi Sunak did on um, the cost of living crisis was, was, was insufficient and that he's going to have to return to it and that that's inevitable. And the, the Prime Minister said that the mor- this morning in his mm. car crash interview, <laughs> that, that, you know, they haven't done enough. They recognise they haven't done enough. Yeah. Um, and there are people's bills who are going up, you know, their bills are going up by 50%. And, you know, if you're, if you're at, the, at the bottom, that's going to push you into food bank use. It's going to push mm. a lot of working families into food bank use. Mm. Arthur, um Johnson chose this week to go full Churchill and tell the Ukrainians that this is their finest hour, which is surely a massive coincidence that this should happen in uh, local election week. I'm sure that was just, you know, nowhere near. Pure chance. Yeah, yeah. pure chance. <laughs> um, what's the polling like for the Conservatives in Kiev North? Are they... Well, I think it's actually quite high. But just on that speech, it's quite a weird analogy if you think about it, because... Uh, Johnson basically said, we we went through the blitz because Johnson obviously likes to liken himself to Churchill. So we're like you in Ukraine. You think, well, the difference is that Britain wasn't invaded and yeah. British civilians weren't massacred. It is actually the case. I think there's lots of evidence for this. However uh, hard it might be for some people to hear that Johnson is genuinely popular in Ukraine. Mm. Um, is it? I mean, I know it's, it is gross and, and horrible to talk about it in this way, but... For all of the kind of, you know, three-hour trip to Kiev that gets him the line of Kiev headlines, is it working for him politically here? Well, it is, because yeah. as Rachel said, uh, you know, various MPs have um, have pulled their envelopes out of the, you know, the magic hat that the chief whip um, looks after. And I suppose you might say, imagine how badly it would be going mm. for him if he didn't have the Ukraine thing to talk about all the time. Mm. Um, and, and a president as in Zelensky, who genuinely seems to look up to him and, and see him as a, you know, as a positive uh, force on the world stage. It's like Gorbachev, isn't it? Everybody in Russia hated him and the rest of the world loved him. Well, well who knows? Yeah. Rachel, just to wrap this bit up, I mean, we've had, you know, we've been hearing about the Red Wall for three years now. Hmm. Uh, people like Britain and Latvia are increasingly talking about the Blue Wall, hmm. traditional Tory areas that are revolted by Boris Johnson and they're filling up with kind of, you know, metropolitan exiles, younger, educated, liberal voters. Um, do the Conservatives have a plan to deal with this, this influx into their areas of, you know, metropolitan ponces like me? Who are <laughs> not going to Forced displacement. <laughs> Forced, no, no, yeah. Turn up your turmeric lattes and you, you know. I, I don't know. I've, I've, I don't think anybody has been able to discover what it is if they have. Mm. Um, but I guess they've got so many squares that they need to circle now because their coalition's so broad. Mm. Um, but I think there is a lot of discontentment in in these new blue wall areas over just Boris Johnson's general behaviour, um, the the flooding of cash to these new red wall areas. They feel, you know, like like, like they have been left behind a little. They're angry about tax rises, um, the housing market. Yeah. yeah, all of these all of these things are questions that the government's going to have to answer, but I don't think they have a, a particular strategy to target those voters yet. The cer- I certainly haven't seen evidence that they've tried specifically to target that group in these local elections. The new, the new left behinds of Tunbridge Wells. So, Rachel, just to wrap it up, well, give, us, give us, you know, nail your colours to the mass. What's going to happen this week? What do you think? I think the Labour Party will, will win Wandsworth and mm. that that'll be the story. Get your five stars, everybody. <laughs> Last week, Vladimir Putin brought back out his enormously long table to meet UN chief Antonio Guterres during talks about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The invasion is stuttering. Kremlin officials have been trying to raise the stakes, warning that sending heavy weapons to Ukraine threatens security in Europe. Meanwhile, we've seen mysterious explosions in Russian provinces and in Transnistria, a breakaway region of Moldova all fueling fears that the conflict is spreading. Um, Arthur, Putin warned that any country that tries to intervene in the Ukraine war will face a lightning-fast response. This seems designed to be worryingly non-specific. What is he alluding to here? Because you know, behind it, everything he says is, we have nukes. 
Well, I think I think you got it. I think you, you, you've uh, you've managed to interpret his subtle mm. point. I mean, the Russians uh, refer to their nukes all the time, and they've been doing it forever. And we shouldn't forget that long before they invaded Ukraine, they were always uh, keen to remind the world that they had lots of nukes. So uh, I don't say that to, to to imply that we shouldn't care and, and we can all be relaxed about it. But I think it's you, you've got to sort of put it in a bit of a wider context. Hmm. I mean, these explosions and these sort of burnings of buildings that we've seen in Russia and Transnistria, both sides are blaming each other. What do you know in your capacity as an entirely civilian person? What do you know about this? What's going on? Well, let's talk. Um, so the ones in Russia. So yeah, obviously, loads of people will have seen you know, those shots of of factories bursting into flames and oil depots and places where they design, uh, you know, aerial bombardment mm-hmm. kit. I think it is highly likely that, that that the Ukrainians have got something to do with that. I think it's highly unlikely uh, that um, any NATO country is involved because that would give the Russians the excuse they need uh, mm. to take the gloves off. Now, how this is happening, uh, if you look at the map, it doesn't seem very likely that it's, it's um, Ukraine's version of the little green men because it's a bloody long way from Ukraine. Mm. So I think you have to sort of speculate that, it, that there's a lot of kind of advanced cyber warfare going on. But that's speculation. I wonder, and as, a, as a, somebody who hasn't a clue what he's talking about, isn't there an, an other um, possibility, which is that this is internal sabotage within Russia, or also that, I mean, you know, many of these places have been kind of vital yep. supply and research mm. places. Others have been perhaps less vital, that, that this is Russians trying to create a pretext. It's not out of the question because the Russians will do some mad stuff to their own people just to justify further mm. activities like Putin blowing up apartment blocks in 99. Um, but it seems to me that uh, there is some r- rather important sort of strategic stuff has gone up in flames. Uh, and so it would be hard to believe that they would go that far. But then one of the things we always find ourselves saying about the Russians is it would be hard to believe they'd go that far and, mm. then, and then they show they're willing to do it. I don't think it's people sent from Ukraine, as it were. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's Russians who are somehow opposed to the regime. But you couldn't rule out the fact that the Ukrainians have recruited Russian agents. Because if you think about uh, how integrated the two countries are, how many people who live in Russia who are themselves of Ukrainian heritage, it's a bit like people have sometimes said the sort of British-Irish thing. Lots mm. of people, um, you know, at, at certain times would have identified with, you know, their Irish heritage more than their British heritage, that kind of thing. You couldn't rule out that that possibility. For Ukraine to attack Russia even covertly would be a very, very big gamble, wouldn't it? Uh, it would. And so you'd have to do it in ways that you could be pretty sure you're not going to get found out. Um, and it's if Russia wanted to claim that this was Ukraine, they could. But of course, then they draw attention to the fact that the Ukrainians, who are seen to be beating them in the normal war, mm. are now beating them in the covert war. So there's a sort of psychological advantage that Ukraine has there, mm. if it is there. You noted this week that Russia somehow managed to pay its foreign debt of $649 million this weekend. The Ukrainian investigative journalist Danilo Mokrik noted that you don't give away half a billion dollars if you're then going to use nukes on the people you've just given it to. Is this a reason to make us think that uh, Putin will continue talking about nukes but not actually using them? Well, I certainly think uh, he's not going to use nukes against uh, a NATO country unless, you know, there's some massive development. But we continue to have this sort of situation of the so-called tactical nukes, the battlefield nukes, which uh, it would be very uh, easy to um, imagine the Russians choosing to use those on Ukrainian territory. One more thing on, on sort of Russian tactics. Last week, Gazprom stopped sending gas to Bulgaria and Poland uh, after they missed the deadline to start paying in rubles, which is what the Russians want. Uh, European gas prices went up about 20%. European Union countries are split on how to wind down their dependence on Russian energy. Is the European front as united as we thought it was? I think it is united, but I think you just have to uh, recognise the practical challenges. So particularly, if you look at Poland, just think about where it is geographically. It is very difficult for Poland to get gas from other places. Mm. Poland historically was very reliant on coal. Well, they're not, you know, that's not popular anymore with, for, for very good reasons to do with climate change. Bulgaria, mm. historically, has almost been a wholly owned subsidiary of uh, Russia. It's been, you know, Russia's uh, sort of man inside the European Union. So the fact that Bulgaria has moved so far from Russia on this wider question is is a positive development. And Justin, uh, Liz Truss surprised everybody last week uh, by going like full 
you know, Valkyrie, uh, calling for U- uh, countries to move further and faster to push Russia out of the whole of Ukraine, raising weapons supplies and all the rest of it. What did you make of this? Um, yes, they seemed a bit extemporised, didn't they? It was, mm. uh, you sort of felt like she maybe got a little carried away during the interview and was had sort of visions of the SAS kind of piling in behind enemy lines or it something. It was quite Portillo-esque. It was, there was definite, definite uh, shades of that. So, and you know, right now you really want people to be choosing their language very, very carefully. And Truss has never struck me as a particularly astute speaker. Mm. So it's perhaps not the person you would ideally choose to be in that role at the moment. Then you could say that for a lot of front bench roles in the government. Um, I mean, I also wonder if at least the part of the intended audience for her general, not just that speech, but her general tone at the moment, is uh, China with an increasing intention to sort of warn them more broadly that if they're tempted to go down a similar path to Russia in relation to Taiwan, there will mm-hmm. be severe penalties. And this she might go and do a photo shoot. Yeah, we'll talk about in sausages Taiwan, yeah. or cheese or whatever that sort of clip was. But, um, but I suppose that there's been, for most of the last... I suppose sort of post-Iraq, really, there's been this sort of broadly held perception of the West that they're sort of, well, like weak, decadent, don't have a stomach for, Mm. you know, a long engagement or any sort of bloody struggle. And I suppose a lot of the mood music coming from people like Truss is essentially trying to say that that is erroneous. And if, you know, liberal democracies are tested, they can push back. Um, It was was possibly somewhat inelegantly phrased, but I suspect that was more the the sort of mood music behind it. She's just had her blood up. That's what it was. Uh, Rachel, in the latest Conservative Home Cabinet League table, hmm. Liz Truss is at number four with an approval rating of 64% compared to minus 5.2 for Rishi Sunak, who is at the bottom of the table. Hmm. Uh, now that Sunak's basically out of the game, is she is she your front runner? Yeah, I think um, I think I think part of her speech was trying to be hmm. seen as a serious politician on the on the world stage who can kind of I, th- I think when you take a few steps back, I bet um, Ben Wallace was one of those on, on that mm. poll who was also doing really well, who's who's favoured by an awful lot of Conservative backbenchers. And he's been seen to be having a very... A very good war, mm. and um, I think this is this is um, some of that because Liz Truss also has talked a lot about having an economic NATO. I think that's um, part of her trying to show off her credentials. An economic NATO, yeah. What with a load of countries all bound together, but like in an economic way, all sharing <laughs> decisions. Wait a minute, hold on. When Liz catches on, don't let this one get out of this room. Well, continue. Not quite, yeah. Um, and I think I think that's some 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 of that was her trying to show off her her background as part of chief secretary to the treasury that she could do economics as well as do some of the um, you know big deal war speeches as well. So she kind of wants to show that she's um, a strong contender versus Ben Wallace as well. Because mm. as as you say, Rishi Sunak's chances of being the next Conservative yeah. Prime Minister have, have plummeted in the last couple of months. It is weird when you when when you're old like me, the kind <laughs> of way in which things just you know rhyme and repeat it's like she's desperate for a Falklands of some kind anything that feels Falklands-y she's really keen to connect herself with that and she's done all the Thatcher cosplay sitting in a tank you know Russian hats and the rest of it Mm. it's like she seems to be desperate for her moment where she can probably become what she wants to be Yes, and I think I think if you kind of just sit, if if you if your approach to t- trying to win a contest is to to let your opponents make mistakes, you know I think she's probably made the fewest mistakes in the last in the last in the last few months. You know, I, I think she'll probably be one of the strongest contenders for for the for the job. Mm. And also, you've got to say if you're trying to appeal to a base of Tory members. Mm. Aping Margaret Thatcher is not a stupid strategy. Mm. You know, there's something about, you know, the whole thing of Thatcher, which still particularly, I think, with male Tories of a certain age, mm. resounds in a very powerful and slightly queasy way. And you saw the like... The I mean, flutters a bit, doesn't it? It does. I mean, and there's... she. There was a cover shoot, I think, on the front of the Times or the Telegraph magazine last year where they shot Trust, and it was this very odd shoot, which was in sort of a trouser shoot, but was sort of shot from underneath, kind of legs akimbo. And it was all a bit weird and queasy and this sort of like, if you're a middle-aged man with slightly weird nanny fixation issues, this is mm. low-hanging fruit. It's I mean, up there with tractors. It's going yeah. straight into that. And I think 
you know, there's as much as it might seem weird to people outside that's going, like, why are you trying to be this like insane version of Thatcher? Her targeting of the Tory membership and her, yeah. her Tory colleagues it's is precision is, guided. Is, yes, precisely. It's 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 genius. So she's she. I mean, this kind of like she has this. There's nothing like the zeal of a convert. And even though she campaigned for a man at the time, yeah. I think she probably has the Brexit group behind her now. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a very pro Brexit parliamentary party, and it remains a pro-Brexit grassroots party as well. When she gets her economic NATO going, I'll change that mind. <laughs> <laughs> Justin, I want to ask you about uh, disinformation um, because it's a huge part of the Ukraine war. The piece of research came out from Clemson University in South Carolina suggesting that Russian disinformation is getting better, getting more sophisticated. They're using Instagram, TikTok and Telegram to spam politicians and public figures. But among, with, you know, with pro-Putin messages and, you know, uh, distortions and untruths about Butcher and all this kind of stuff. Among their targets are Boris Johnson, obviously, but also Daft Punk, David Guetta and Tiesto. Now, what's not going Tiesto, on? No. Not, not anybody but Tiesto, Guetta, whatever. But, you know, I mean, this is odd. But the, the dance music thing is real because in the last two weeks, I've seen a whole bunch of accounts of mid-level DJs that I know that have obviously been hacked and taken over by crypto scams. So poor old Severino <laughs> from Horsemeat Disco no. was suddenly posting all these things about, I've made £30,000 in the last... And then DJ Bill Brewster from DJ History got yeah. taken over. And I was like, I'm assuming that's some kind of Russian thing. What they're going to gain from targeting, you know, dear old Severino from Horsemeat Disco, I'm not entirely clear. But, but, but I mean... It I, goes deep. I don't know, you know. Because I mean, if you wanted to target hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people who've rendered themselves very psychologically receptive, shall we say, by a combination of recreational activities and also doing their own research, then maybe spamming David Guetta's account and saying that, you know, Ukraine is full of Nazis isn't a crazy idea. No, no, and all joking aside, as well as the DJs, there's a huge thing in, um, like, the fitness community where, like, people like personal trainers, people with big fitness followings are they are ripe for being targeted, particularly anti-vax stuff. But then that crossed over into a lot of anti-lockdown stuff. And there's a definite cranky fringe of people who are sort of big fitness influencers on Instagram that have gone right down the wormhole on this stuff because they've been targeted. And again, you know, there's a kind of haphazard logic to it in that they're people with big followings or fairly impressionable people (laughs) who, you know... And and Putin's always taking his... Top off, isn't he? Like all the bodybuilders. He's so maybe that's, he- that's yeah. the overlap. He's quite a health goth, isn't he? <laughs> he is, but he is weirdly small. A lot of this is very, very good tailoring. There's a lot written in menswear stuff about um, how insanely good Putin's tailoring is. Um, it's every single trick. I mean, it's really top flight tailoring, but it's every single trick in the book to make things like your neck look longer, make your shoulders look wider. He's a v- rather small, rather averagely shaped man. Um, and he has an absolutely incredible, like these, like Savile Row level tailors who can pull every trick in the book to make him look big and imposing. And the way he's photographed, obviously, mm. adds into that a lot. Can you hook me up, <laughs> <laughs> Arthur? We ask you this every week, just just to wind up. You know, give us your give us your this week sense of of how the war is going. I mean, uh, last week uh, the NATO Deputy Secretary General Mircea Gowania was saying that it could go on for years. Well, I think this week what we're seeing is that the the Russians sort of second bit of their mission, so that when they switched over to focus on the Donbass and the eastern side, that is also starting to go badly. Perhaps not surprising because the Russian army appears not to be very good at its job. However, they have been in different ways, uh, you know, occupying bits of Ukraine, Donbass area since 2014. And that's the point about it going on for years that Ukrainians probably don't have enough mass to dislodge the Russians from that bit of Ukraine. But the Russians don't have enough to push their own way, you know, across the bottom of Ukraine, creating that kind of land bridge that we keep hearing about. So I'm afraid, yeah, it will probably last a long time. I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Finally, God knows we need something a bit less depressing, and the bunker is here for you on that count. The search is on for new emojis so that you can express yourself with a broader lexicon than lobster, pig, aubergine, lightning bolt. If you think there's a yawning gap in the emoji lexicon, then the Unicode Consortium wants to hear from you. They are the non-profit group that oversees the official emoji lexicon. It's opened up applications for the next batch. It suggests avoiding, quote, trendy emojis that will soon become outdated, and it forbids direct references to specific people, buildings, landmarks, companies, or deities. So there's not going to be an Elvis anytime soon. Um, Justin, as a master of the emoji, uh, do you think they've changed the way we communicate? It's not just like it's long transcended nonverbal teens. I'm not sure they've changed communication because there's always been simplistic shorthands which mm. have allowed speedy, you know, very quick communication. So, you know, Roman emperors giving the thumbs up or the thumbs down or... ACAB chiselled into every desk at my school, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's a great place. Uh, what, what I think they probably have done is inject a more elevated level of nuance into a medium which originally its main shortcoming was that it was quite hard to convey sarcasm or irony mm. through text speak and it was very easy to sort of misapprehend things. So I think they've probably just broadened out how you can communicate via that. One thing I found really uh, useful about it is a way to just like truncate conversations very quickly by sending a thumbs up emoji. <laughs> it's like, I don't have to do a reply here, just like, that's great. But that's great. Now I mean, but, and that, that pulls time back for you. So, I mean, mm. things like that. You so say you could sometimes, I don't say, oh, you know, it's rude if you just terminate conversations. Bollocks. It's like sometimes you do just want to close these things down and move on. So, it's very useful for that. Isn't it just also an encouragement to be a dick? Because you, you'll kind of, particularly on social media, you'll see long and reasoned arguments. And the response will just be like, fucking cry laugh emoji thing the worst thing in the world how <laughs> cry laugh which seems terrible until you can do it for your own side so like two, two, two days ago when it's Farage posting you know a photo of him bobbing round in a dinghy and it's like a cry hard wanker um, so uh, yeah I think sometimes they have their place and and you know in that way you know if you want to get a bit more highfalutin if those emojis can kind of function as your sort of shadow self so you know it strikes me as probable that someone who's an absolute dick in terms of how they use them is probably like that in their normal verbal communication Mm. as well so i I suspect it's not you know getting anyone to give a particularly terrible version of themselves if that isn't in there already it's basically like it you can also see it as a positive in that it advertises who the people are you should avoid. So if people are using certain emojis, it's like, you know, a snake having poisonous markings or a bloke having a photo of himself holding a fish on his dating profile. It's just a thing that says, you know, <laughs> step back and avoid, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> avoid now. The, the overwhelming amount of your uh, internet communication consists of you posting the Mr. Quizzical emoji oh. under everything, the chin stroke you want. <laughs> I absolutely love Mr. Quizzical. It's the it's the just greatest. Animal, yeah. It is the, is my spirit animal. It's the face of modern. I mean, like, what defines this the modern shitstorm in which we live more than that sort of blank combination of scepticism, indecision, and incredulity? This sort of mm, smiley face stroking his chin. Yeah, because mm. it's that sort of. It's not smiling. It's sort of like well, he's a yellow oh, face. It's, face yeah. it's sort of oh god, what now? You know, it's the it's a podcast in that. It's <laughs> a podcast now. But no, I think Mister Quizzical has been deployed. It is the most versatile of emoji. Rachel, I mean, we know how you know WhatsApp groups have completely colonised Westminster, and it's like for a place that loves backstabbing and, and talking behind, uh, you know, talk, talking behind the wool sack and all those strange practices. Uh, yeah, presumably emojis have a similar currency amongst this lot. You, do, you just get like four o'clock in the morning, a snake appears. And like, <laughs> oh right, <laughs> you know, such and such is on the outs. Um, I think I think I probably experienced most emojis on Twitter, mm. and that it happens quite a lot. I've noticed the, the the use of there are many more emojis out there by now. Cause it kind of takes the heat out of what is often like a quite a difficult argument or yeah. like sort of. I don't know, it's just a bit more playful and a bit less serious if you can stick in a few emojis and it tends to like just build a bit more good faith and a bit more like makes things a bit more fun. Um, I don't know about, I don't know about WhatsApps. Yeah. yeah. But there is a kind of pass act thing to it, isn't it? That like you'll yeah. see, you know, MPs, uh, you, know, you know, Pretty Patel's proposition to send everybody to Rwanda and never let them back again is brilliant and what the country ought to be doing. And then there's like this kind of thumbs up smiling emoji next to it. And you're like, <laughs> are you reading the room here? Or, what, or, or maybe this is what your followers want to see. 
Um, I, I, I don't tend to use them like, but like with with sarcasm. But mm. I think it's sort of yeah. You'll notice that a, that a tweet with an emoji on will get an awful lot more engagement. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, Generally, is I mean, we know that Cummings likes to use the shopping trolley, so he doesn't have to type out Boris Johnson, yeah. hurts his thumb, and save some characters. Is there other? Can you know? Let us in on the inside. So is there other emoji shorthand within the WhatsApp groups that you're in? You know, a clown, a pig, things um, like that. The one I see the most, I think, is is the emoji with no mouth. Right. So it's kind of just a stare. It's like mm. staring into the abyss and the abyss staring back at you. <laughs> Is it just in your own personal communications? <laughs> it's just what I dream about at night. Arthur, can you see the emoji being used on the battlefield for rapid communication and uh, moments of great swift manoeuvre? Well, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it already is um, because certainly uh, in, in, for example, ISIS, they made extensive use of WhatsApp for their battlefield communications. So that yeah. probably included emojis. Yeah. Right. I should have to think what the ISIS emoji lexicon would be. Mr. Quizzical. Jihad, Jihad, Mr. Quizzical, yeah. Um, I, I found that uh, Tel Aviv University's Collar School of Management uh, found that employees who use pictures and emojis in emails and work context are perceived as less authoritative. And now all of our politicians and all of our managers are doing it. It's, it's, we, basically, the entire world is... Are you sad face about this, Arthur? Well, I, I'm, that makes me less authoritative, too, because oh, right. I'm guilty of... Uh, I, the thing about... Um, um, I'm, you know, sounding like an old man here. It, it's very time-consuming writing things out, isn't it? It is. So quite helpful, those little pictures. Well, some of the emojis that were rejected uh, by the Unicode Consortium, great band, uh, were uh, the guillotine, kind of understandable. <laughs> you don't want people sending you guillotines, do yeah. you? As that guy who was convicted today found out. In, indeed, know, yes. Guillotines outside Back the to ISIS, yes. Absolutely. Also rejected Angry Poo twice. Uh, sausage toast journalist was rejected. I'm not. I presume a journalist emoji would just be the hat with press in it, the traditional. I guess you know, yeah. but it's been rejected. They don't want it. Yorkshire pudding and An all, outrage. I know, yeah. And all football club badges have all been rejected. Ooh. So, Justin, what would you like to see? Obviously, if you can wean yourself off, Mister Quizzical. Well, uh, the, the other one is I've been sort of making my own hybrid ones. So, about three times a day in British politics, when something just depresses and sort of. To feel the will to live ebbing away, mm. I'll usually forward it to my friend with the the one that's like the straight mouth and the kind of blank expressionless yeah. face with a gun next to its own head. <laughs> so uh, I could be with a blank face Mr. Emoji pointing a gun at his own temple because it's that. quite fiddly trying to put two together like that. That's the kind of thing that would get you reported. Um, Rachel, how about you? What's, what's needed? What's, what is not in the journalistic backroom arsenal? I would like an emoji for Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude, <laughs> which is a very good because it's such a long word. Yeah, and I'm not sure quite how it would look, but if if, if there were such an emoji, I think it would be quite satisfying. Excellent, so to get on it. Yeah, Arthur, well, how about well, you? Well, that's blown my suggestion. <laughs> well, I've got a very boring but important one, which is that there are lots of flags, and that's useful, particularly when you're sort of tweeting about sort of geopolitical stuff. Mm. But there isn't a NATO flag one. Oh, although NATO has a perfectly good flag, there is no NATO flag emoji. There's quite there's a lot of controversy about this because Quebec wants theirs to be on oh, there as an emoji and they're not allowed to have because they're, they're not a country, not a country. Yes. No. of course all football crests yeah. and so on but uh, yeah. uh, good one NATO Get M- on maybe it. they'll be in this next um, issue let's hope so and that brings us to the end of this week's bunker which means it is time for the panel's escape routes the things that take their mind off the nightmare world of politics which for instance if you've been on a cruise to Norway like Rachel has you might not be experiencing anyway <laughs> Arthur what's your escape route this week? Well it, it, it was it was not really to take your mind off the nightmare world of politics because I watched a sort of political drama on Netflix uh, called Anatomy of a Scandal and uh, it was terrible <laughs> so not only was it it doesn't take your mind off politics it was it's really not worth watching and it has a plot twist which is so crashingly obvious but so stupid that i that the sort of second half of the series i was thinking well they can't possibly do that because that's so stupid so there'll be something cleverer but no they just went straight in for the stupid plot twist this is the kind of i'm told this is the kind of political drama where big ben is visible from every window no matter yeah, where you are <laughs> in london ball in britain uh, yeah yeah and it's bonging. yes it is that that it's that sort of um and and um the the prime minister obviously walks in and out of number 10 downing street periodically and yet it is 
grindingly obvious that it's not number 10 Downing Street right. where they shot it. And admittedly, they probably weren't allowed to go to Downing Street, but they could have mocked it up. It's surely. not difficult. No. Just get some cardboard no. flats on that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Rachel, how about you? What's your escape route? You've just got off a cruise ship. I, you don't I, need can't, one. I, I feel sort of like I have to be back at my desk more than a, more than a, a escaping, really. Well, I've got a weekend planned with a bottle of wine with a pal. I think that's probably the simplest the simplest. That's escape route possible. That's entirely reasonable. How about you, Justin? Um, having hardly left the house for about four months because winter depresses me so much, um, I went proper raving last weekend. Proper raving? Proper raving to see Danny Crivet at Spiritland. Explain to the listeners who Danny Crivet is. Danny Crivet is one of the absolute sort of elder statesmen of the sort of late disco through sort of house New York period. Uh, he used to run Body and Soul in New York and it is five-hour set at Spiritland who are pals of the show. They yeah. have the best sound system in the country and it was mind-blowingly good. Five-hour set, four records. Oh, it was just, yeah. it was right up my street. Just being in a sweaty, crowded room with an amazing sound system hearing really chunky Big Bear disco music for five hours was meat and drink. Well, we're in a very sweaty room with a great sound system right now. Um, <laughs> mine, is, uh, mine is Shining Girls on Apple TV+, Plus, which is the new new drama featuring Elizabeth, Mo- Elizabeth Moss of Mad Men Handmaid's Tale fame. The conceit on this one is a, uh, a woman having uh, experienced uh, an extremely serious assault finds that the world literally changes around her periodically. She'll pick up a cup, she'll look away, she'll look back and it's turned into a telephone. Uh, the you know the wallpaper in her house will change. The people she lives with will change, and she's attempting to get to the bottom of this serial killer story in which she is possibly the first victim, and trying simultaneously to navigate a world that literally changes around her. And the great thing about it is, she when she explains what's happening to her, the other characters take it as a kind of metaphor or an allusion to what's happening. Yes, since you were attacked, the world has changed around you. No, it literally has changed. Dogs turn into cats. Cars turn into motorbikes, and they just don't get that. So it is a, it's a, as well as being a brilliant thriller and incredibly well acted by Elizabeth Moss, who can just convey in the tiniest, uh, tiniest ways what it's like to feel under incredible pressure. It's also in itself a brilliant metaphor for what it's like to be the, the survivor of an attack where the world doesn't make sense anymore. And it's it's from Lauren Bukes's novel, South African uh, novelist, um, and that idea of of taking, you know, the very you know, the most common thing you can say about a serious assault, the world is not the same, and externalising it just makes it into the most stunningly original thing, and it's it's so good. And also, from a pure kind of nerd point of view, it's a very, very, very original take on time travel. Mm. Of the kind, and I've read a lot of this kind of stuff, that you have, <laughs> uh, I've never seen before, so I recommend it hugely. That's Shining Girls on Apple TV+. And that is the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you, Arthur Snell. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Justin Quirk. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you to our special guest, Rachel Wearmouth. Thank you. Please do come again. Um, We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily. This time next week, it's the full-time show again. If you like what we're doing, please do support us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Merely £2 a month will help us keep on going. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next time. Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Justin Quirk and Arthur Snell. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the producers were Jacob Archbold, Jan Sofronievich and me, Alex Reese. With assistant production by Alina Ganatra. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>